Hello and welcome to Beyond Consulting, brought to you by ECA Partners, the only podcast dedicated to navigating your career after consulting. I'm Ken Canera, host of Beyond Consulting and CEO of ECA Partners, a specialized project staffing and executive search firm focused on former management consultants and private equity. Each week, I get to host guests that have spent time in consulting and successfully transitioned out and gone on to do more interesting things with their career path. This week, I'd like to welcome Brad Eckert to the show. Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, you bet, Ken. Happy, happy to be here. Thanks. So, Brad, I guess first things first, would love to maybe just have you give a, a quick kind of background on yourself and and and, and kind of uh, your career just in general and what you're doing now. Absolutely. Well, uh, I have to go back a couple of years, but uh, originally uh, I went to my undergrad at the U.S. Naval Academy. Um, so I was active duty in the Navy for about 10 years. I was a naval flight officer um, uh, working on a carrier-based jet. Uh, and then after my, my squadron tour uh, in the EA-6B Prowler, uh, which was an electronic radar jamming jamming plane. We, we protected the good guys when they were going after the bad guys. Uh, I then went to UCLA and taught Navy ROTC. And while I was doing that, I got my MBA. Um, and at that time, it's just funny that this is a kind of a post-consulting career kind of uh, dedicated show because when I was getting my MBA, the last thing in the world I wanted to be was a consultant. I, uh, I knew nothing about finance or the markets or anything like that. I mean, I had, I'd been a military guy and uh, and I really wanted to get into investment banking and capital markets because I, I just really wanted to know about, you know, money flows and what makes things tick in the economy. So originally, after I got my MBA, I joined a middle market investment bank headquartered out of Milwaukee at Robert W. Baird. Uh, great firm. Uh, spent my first three and a half years there doing stereotypical investment banking work, mainly sell side, some, some fairness opinion types of things. Then I helped establish the capital markets desk at Baird, working with the, the bankers and the institutional salespeople and the research analysts to, uh, to help out our, our public or private going public clients doing that. And it's been about uh, four years doing that. It was terrific, really enjoyed it. Um, and then I ended up having an opportunity though to experience another part of the markets, which was the wealth management side of things. So I joined one of Baird's uh, larger producers um, just before the market crashed in 2008. So my timing to move into wealth management was not, uh, not the best in the world, you know, in the current market conditions, it kind of, kind of reminds me a little bit of that. Hopefully it doesn't get, doesn't get that bad. And I don't think it will, but I found quickly that the wealth management side just, you know, really wasn't as challenging, uh, as work as, as I was used to. And I really wanted to continue that path of developing myself professionally, uh, with my education and, and work experience. So I had the opportunity to move into consulting based off of a good friend of mine from the Naval Academy, he recommended I look into the, some of the consulting um, companies um, and ended up joining Accenture in their M&A growth strategy group in 2010. Uh, and I was with Accenture for about four and a half years doing primarily acquisition uh, integration work um, and, and a little bit of strategy, but Accenture, great firm, uh, definitely has an IT focus, though. Uh, so I would uh, work with our clients in their acquisition integration. Uh, and a lot of the work we did was to also try and get some of the, the IT uh, work, some of the longer term kind of recurring revenue type work. Uh, after about five years of doing that, which was interrupted by a, a stint in Afghanistan because I rejoined the U.S. Navy Reserve in 2010, 
And uh, I spent most of 2013 in Afghanistan running a drone unit, working with the uh, Army Special Forces. So terrific, uh, terrific opportunity. Um, if I had to be in Afghanistan, it was it was a great role, uh, something I really enjoyed doing. Uh, and Accenture was terrific in supporting that. So came came back off of that mobilization, went right back to work for Accenture, and then uh, had the opportunity to join EY, doing much of the same type of work, transaction advisory services uh, group in their financial services, transaction advisory services group, uh, and was with them for about five years, doing a lot of the similar work, but Accenture did a little, or I'm sorry, EY did a little bit more across the board. They would do integration work, but they did a lot of separation. So a company wants to, you know, carve out, you know, a division or or maybe even a plant or or just some aspects of the organization. We would help them do that. Some broader exposure to organizational development at the time, uh, as well as some strategy work. Uh, and then once again, the U.S. Navy tapped me on my shoulder, though, while I was with EY. Uh, and I spent 2018 with the Joint Special Operations Command out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, um, supporting aviation operations supporting a lot of the special forces, primarily in the Middle East, uh, and spent a few months in a, uh, in a country that most people aren't familiar with, Djibouti, Africa, um, which, is, uh, which is a very unique place, but it is uh, the location of the Navy's only permanent base in Africa. So uh, had some great experiences there, working with the special forces guys, and then came back, went right back to work for EY, um, and as many people, hopefully in your listening audience are aware, uh, right back on the road because this was pre-COVID, uh, and I was on a very demanding project in uh, in Boston. So traveling from the Milwaukee area to Boston every week, Sunday night, early Monday morning, working all week, coming back, weekend work, pretty grinding. Uh, and uh, I had one of those life epitomes, just one of those life moments where I got back one week, Thursday night, or it was a Friday, and I looked at my house. And I just thought, what am I doing? I've I've had my head down. I've been on the road doing the consulting thing for most of the last 10 years. Uh, my kids were getting older. I still had a couple of sons that were in high school and getting ready to go to college. And I just said, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, I want to do something else with my career. And I'd always been interested in corporate development type work, given my investment banking, capital markets experience, and then combine it with all the operational M&A work that I've been doing in consulting, as I'm sure a lot of your you, uh, as well as other people in the, in the listening audience are aware, you're always getting um, headhunters or recruiters calling people up, you know, wanting to go from one consulting firm to a next. It's always a, a frothy market there. And uh, for many years, I've been telling people when they'd reach out to me and ask if I was interested in moving, I said, you know, unless you have a corporate development type of opportunity at a fast growing or high growth type of an organization, uh, that's really the only other thing that I'd be interested in doing. Um, so a little bit longer story here, but uh, ended up getting approached by a, a good friend of mine who was also a Naval Academy grad who, uh, along with his partners, or as long with his brothers, who were, who were his partners, they, uh, they own uh, an industrial distribution company as well as a metal fabrication company, as well as a motion uh, control device company. Uh, and they needed help growing their organizations uh, through acquisitions. They were, all the brothers were very actively involved in actually running the day-to-day didn't have time to go out and do a lot of the kind of the sourcing and, you know, and deal deal creation type of activities. Um, and it made sense. They were local. I've known the family for a long time. So they brought me on as their uh, director of corporate development about mid-2019, and I've been with them ever since. 
So excellent. And let me start off by just saying thank you for your service over and over again (laughs) throughout your career. Uh, I I really mean that. Thanks. Thanks. So, Brad, the organization you're with right now is Wisconsin uh, Stamping and Manufacturing. Is that right? Correct. That is that's where I sit. Uh, It has a sister company called Weimar Industries or Weimar Bearing and Transmission. They are a they're one of the largest privately held industrial distribution companies in the U.S. Um, they are located in about seven states um, and a, a good sized organization. Um, and again, they're 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 serving OEMs through a distribution network. Um, the com- that company works closely with Wisconsin Stamping and Manufacturing, and at Wisconsin Stamping, it's been around since 1958. Uh, however, in the last 15 years since uh, since the the family purchased the company, they've really grown it. Uh, originally, it was just making a small seamed uh, tubular product that was used in uh, compression fittings in the oil and gas refining industry. But the uh, the family really concentrated on expanding the capabilities and skill sets. And now we do just about everything to smaller metal pieces. Um, we do Swiss machining, laser cutting, uh, robotic welding, welding, uh, we, uh, metal folding, um, some tra- more traditional stamping, wire forming. Uh, we also have a fastener distribution business called World Source, which, uh, which is just a very small version of Fastenal, but it fits in nicely with the type of components that we make at stamping. And ideally, we want to be a value-added uh, provider to our original equipment manufacturer cus- uh, customers. So we don't want to just make 10,000 in one piece and box it and ship it out. We want to find out what that piece goes to. Can we make the other parts to it, combine it, potentially kit some fasteners with it uh, and send it out to uh, to really achieve some more value add and make a higher profit margin. So, Brad, you mentioned industrial distribution, fabrication, motion, motion control. I guess, do you think about the business as kind of a conglomerate? How do you think about the, maybe the different business units altogether? Yeah, the primary businesses are Weimar Industries and Wisconsin Stamping. Um, and there is some distinct commonalities between the two, primarily that they're serv- servicing OEMs. Okay. Some of the parts or, or the equipment that, that Weimar, the sister company, is providing to the OEMs are being provided by Wisconsin Stamping, even though they are run as two, you know, arm's length type, type of companies. Um, but they definitely... Uh, the family uh, as operators, very intelligent, very smart operators. They know the OEM market uh, and that is their sweet spot. So part of my job on a day-to-day basis is to look for companies or acquisitions that are going to be complementary to the existing businesses, um, but also to look for new investments, very, very private equity-like, very, very much like a family office. You know, are there any other investment, uh, potential investments in any kind of manufactured product, engineered design product that's being provided to OEMs. We, we tend to stay away from the retail, uh, direct to retail type of manufacturers. Uh, that's just not where the sweet spot is. Um, but uh, so it, it helps me out to kind of stay in a, in a particular lane, but at the same time, it's, it's relatively broad. So that's super helpful. And so let's talk a little bit about corporate development and what that means, because I think, you know, most of us that work in consulting, we, we, we leave consulting thinking that everything is just about kind of organic growth and, you know, I'm going to expand into new regions. I'm going to, but, but a, a lot of the growth strategies that are employed by 
private businesses, private equity, family offices are inorganic and pursuing acquisitions the way you are. Could you maybe just elaborate a little bit more on kind of what corporate development means? Sure. And again, you can mean different different strokes to different folks, but in general, <laughs> corporate development is identifying those areas that can that can, you know, name came from somewhere, help develop the corporation to either expand its its capabilities, its offerings, potentially its markets. Um, and and really the way I look at it is what's the best way of doing that? And when I when I approach uh, the market or when I think about, hey, what can I do on a day-to-day basis to help out the company? Um, in today's world, especially with COVID, from a corporate development function, I think of, okay, is there is there something out there that we can acquire that would just take us too long to to do in-house or or the, you know, it'd be very costly and time consuming. So, hey, it's better to buy it than to make it, that kind of thing. Are there markets that we want to get into? Are there customers that we just haven't been able to to penetrate? And quite sincerely, in the in the market that we've been in the last two years, um, we will we'll look at companies that are similar uh, to the primary companies uh, from an employee basis uh, alone, just because it's been so hard to get uh, employees over the, over the last year and a half, two years. There's that aspect. So there's definitely the acquisition mentality the inorganic growth that I you know, definitely spend a lot of my time on. But one thing when I'm reaching out to potential targets, uh, ideally I'm going to uncover something that's not marketed, that's not being brought to me by an investment banker or, a, or one of the smaller brokerage type firms. Um, and when I reach out to folks, um, it's not necessarily, hey, are you for sale? Can I buy you? It's let me understand your business, uh, cultivating a relationship. Uh, def- it's definitely not a hard sell. And it's Hey, let's see. Let me hear your story. You know, what are your intentions? Do you do you have a time frame? Have you thought about an, a transaction? And if not, how can we how can we help each other? Is there an opportunity for us to you know provide you with potential leads that, that we're not servicing and and vice versa? And I've enjoyed that a lot over the last couple of years. I think it's very well received. Um, so a lot of it's uh, a little bit of just relationship building in the market um, and getting our name out there. And it's surprising. I think, um, you know, people always hear, hey, networking, it's so important, you know, in your personal career. But as a, as a professional going out there representing your organization, your organization needs to network as well. And so I, I kind of take that on, you know, and put that in, in under the hat of corporate development as well. I completely agree. And if you think about kind of like your process in general, as it relates to from sourcing a deal all the way to kind of a transaction. What, I guess, what are some of the key success factors from your perspective? One of the key key factors in, in the competitive environment we've had the last couple of years is, can you find something that's not being marketed? And can you establish a relationship with that particular seller where they don't feel compelled that they need to go out and shop something around? Now, part of, part of my job when I'm going out and trying to, to do that I will be honest with folks. I'll say, look, if if you wanna if you wanna go out and shop this, you know, by all means, feel free to do it because you can always get a top dollar, but it may not be the buyer that you want. It may not be mm-hmm. the the buyer uh, that you really want to leave your your companies, you know, in the hands of. Because uh, a lot of people that I talk to are, are private individuals or maybe a couple, you know, a couple of individuals, and those folks tend to be much more concerned about their legacy and who they're leaving it to, uh, as opposed to potentially a, a private equity seller um, who who's not not as concerned. You know, they're more concerned about getting a return to their 
to their investors, which is totally understandable. As much as I'd like to say that 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 means a lot in the market, it does mean something. But with the frothiness of the market we've had in the last year and a half, I'd say it's about a half turn to a a turn of equity at, at most. But that's a lot of my approach to that I think is one of the most important things is trying to trying to find a deal for value for my for the businesses that I represent. Because if it's not if it's not a good deal, if it's too much risk for the potential return, then it doesn't make sense for us to spend our time on it. So uh, I think that's that, you know, deal sourcing, you know, in the corporate development side, it's very important. It's important to cultivate a lot of relationships. Um, I certainly have relationships with a number of investment bankers and and brokers, but uh, I find I've gotten the most use out of you know, I, have a, I have a very wide range of bankers that I work with, commercial bankers, because, you know, they certainly have their clients that they are close to and they know what's going on. Uh, same can be said for accountants or insurance agents, those kind of trusted advisors that business owners are going to have. So, again, I spend, you know, the majority of my day to day doing that networking, trying to identify uh, deal flow. Uh, and then when I'm not doing that, you know, success from a corporate development side means understanding the potential investment, um, understanding from a diligence perspective what's important, what's not, uh, understanding from the organizations that I represent, you know, what's important to them, what can they live with, uh, what's going to turn them off right away. Uh, because in my role, I'm I'm a I'm about a one man shop. I don't have a lot of support underneath me, so I do all the valuation. Um, you know, the diligence is primarily on my own. I, there's certainly areas where I, that I can get some leverage, but I need to be very cognizant of, you know, where it is I need to spend my time. You know, what are some of the things that I can identify early on that says, okay, this is, this is why this isn't going to work. Um, and then, you know, potentially be of some assistance, you know, to whoever I'm working with at the time, but, but moving on quickly to the next uh, opportunity. So you mentioned networking and relationship building being a key element to your success. One of the things or themes of the this show that has emerged surprisingly to me is that that for some reason doesn't come easy to management consultants. And my hypothesis is that we're thrown into consulting and it's almost forced networking and relationship building overload so much so yeah. that it, it like, it, it's like we're given too much too soon. Right. And, and we've, we never had to work at it. I guess, how do you keep things kind of going, I guess, organically, in, you know, in, in your life and your career now from a networking and relationship perspective? Yeah, I, I worked with a, uh, a gentleman a number of years ago. His name's John Murray, and he was a partner at Accenture at the time. And he really impressed upon me uh, when it came to developing relationships. He always asked people what he could do for them. Right? He, was, he was very giving with his time and with his investment of knowledge and what he could do for somebody he very rarely asked for things. And so he really lived that that approach and he's been a very successful individual doing so. And I think when it comes to networking, and you're right, in consulting, you're kind of forced to be in a group of a lot of people and meet people. It just kind of happens, you know, naturally, or at least you're gonna you're gonna be introduced to a lot of people. So your network grows just by the very nature of the project type work and moving from a project to a project to a project, uh, or different industries or different companies. But I find that I have to be very aware of almost anybody that I have an interaction with. I try to make it meaningful um, and you know, always make a good impression. But you're going to develop a real relationship when you're not a taker. You know, if you're a giver or at a minimum, somebody that is willing to assist other people. Because, uh, 
as, as one of my favorite mantras is if, if you, if you want to have friends, you need to be a friend first and foremost, mm-hmm. you got to be a friend. And when I look at my business or when, the way I approach, you know, networking, it's the same way. I either will ask for advice if, if it's somebody that I, that I want to connect with, uh, that I respect and would like to cultivate a, you know, deeper, uh, deeper relationship with, or I just say, Hey, it'd be great to connect to see if there's a way that we can help each other out. And that's a, it's a very, uh, easy way to open up a conversation. Uh, to me, it comes naturally. It's, it's honest and it's open. You know, you're not making any promises, but, uh, Definitely try to always keep in mind when I'm when I'm talking with people to say, hey, you know, what what can I do for you? Because I I'm always impressed with people when they ask me that when they say, hey, this is all great, but but what can I do for you? Just that simple statement really resonates with me. That I'm like, wow, at a minimum, they're taking the time to ask. Sure. And and hopefully it's it's very sincere and and there's follow up. So that's 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 my approach. Excellent. And if you think about kind of uh, your career and I'll, I'll chunk it into th- three kind of categories prior to what you're doing now, investment banking, consulting, and then uh, your years in service for for the United States. I guess would love to kind of hear from your perspective from each of those categories. Um, and if there's more, feel free to add what I'm missing, how that's kind of helped shape your role now and, and, and how you approach how, how you approach things and maybe different things that you, you took from each of those experiences. What I got from the investment banking capital market side, it, you know, it was it was that front end deal aspect. It was the, hey, what are investors looking for? What uh, what's important to a CEO, CFO? COOs, uh, particularly if they're shareholders in, a, in an organization, what's being valued by potential buyers, uh, either private equity firms or, or the public markets. So it gave me a good sense for what is a value, you know, value add, what's the value generator for organizations that they want their company to look like or other financials to reflect. And that was all great. And then when I moved into the consulting world, you know, most of your listeners have probably heard the statistics, you know, half of M&A doesn't create the value that, you know, that the that the original buyer intended for it to. And most of the people listening could probably understand there is a reason why, because it's hard. It's it's hard to bring companies together or it's hard to to separate a company in a in a, uh, you know, a thoughtful, you know, well-constructed manner that uh, that doesn't disrupt organizations and doesn't take people's eyes off the ball. It's a very simple, simple statement, but that whole first do no harm. And that's what always comes to mind when I think of transactions, you know, don't, don't screw things up. We got to keep the lights on, you know, the widgets need to come off the line. Uh, People need to be happy. We can't have people leaving. There's so many aspects to a transaction that need to be addressed. And I think that's what I've really taken away from consulting, uh, despite my fact that the fact that, again, I was very hesitant, reluctant consultant. And as much as some of the work is was just grueling and, and miserable. I mean, it was just long <laughs> hours. I mean, I always thought banking was bad. Banking was was okay, honestly, compared to consulting. Sometimes I, I, I still think, man, bankers are doing it right because, you <laughs> yeah, know. Because you had the travel in there and then, you know. Yeah, yeah. At honestly, least you're going to your own bed in banking, right? It, that's exactly it. And and when I, when I, I kept seeing partners in, a, in consulting firms traveling just as much, working, you know, practically as much as the senior managers and the managers and the consultants and the analysts, I just thought, this doesn't seem like the right trade-off to me at that level. So I, I digress a little bit there. But uh, but one thing that helped me from my military background was I 
I had a number of experiences that, uh, you know, the living conditions, you know, it wasn't the Marriott. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, the nice Sheraton and it wasn't the good meals and, and that kind of thing. So I could always go back to some of my military experience and say, well, hey, at least I'm not getting shot at, you know. And so and that, that Monday morning getting up at 3.45 a.m. to catch the 6 a.m. flight to go wherever, you know, I would be pretty miserable. But I thought, but you know what? It's all right. I got a Starbucks in my hand and, you know, <laughs> life's, life could be a lot worse. So I think the military gave me a, a lot of really good perspective and it, it definitely gave me a lot of good leadership skills and how to deal with people in a, uh, in a stressful in, environment, uh, how to deal with uh, leadership and, and, and many times how to just be a follower. Because if you want to be a good leader, you got to be a good follower. So I've taken a number of things from the military and applied it to, to both the investment banking world that I was in. Uh, as well as the consulting. So, yeah. And one thing, I guess, just my own observations that I've seen, especially with the military guys that come into consulting too, is, is almost like a dynamic assertiveness, right? So it's, it's, yep. it's very evident that they've dealt with much bigger problems than the formatting of a, of a PowerPoint slide. And, nice. and they don't get easily rattled on things that admittedly I did as an analyst. Um, and I was always impressed with that. Yep. Nope. Definitely. Most most folks have gone through a little bit of trial by fire in one, in one manner or another. Um, and uh, yeah, it's definitely good to have that kind of background to leverage. So Excellent. So Brett, would love to also just talk about kind of like, I guess, kind of post-transaction, right? So, um, you know, say you've you've found a great deal, you've, you've, you've acquired a company, you've added it to the portfolio, completed the transaction, but now, now I, I would guess now the real work starts um, with, with integration. Could you maybe talk a little bit about kind of like what that typically means and some of the challenges that uh, you guys uh, have seen? Sure. I'm sure everybody listening is, uh, or at least the majority have had an experience with kind of that, that day one, you know, the, you have a closing checklist, you get your day one checklist, you've got your day 100 checklist and then kind of your year one or or maybe a shorter period, six month checklist. But there's certainly a lot of activities that need to get done because once the deal's closed, now both organizations are aware of what's going on. I'm always acutely aware of kind of the HR uh, or the employee communication type of uh, uh, environment. You know, are, do, do people have the, the information that they need uh, to be successful bringing these companies together? Uh, are they are they personally invested? Are there are there issues that are going to arise right out of the gate that we need to address? Um, just to try and you know make sure that that human capital uh, is coming together as well as it can, because then you've got to deal with everything else. You have the obvious systems integration if it needs to be there. It's just almost like anything else. You, you can do your homework beforehand, and you can do all the, do all the diligence in the world. But you really don't know what you got until until it's done and you start getting in, in there on a day to day basis and seeing, you know, OK, is this organization really what we thought it was? Are we going to uncover anything that's going to be an issue? Um, and that's really where you get to know your spouse. Once the wedding's occurred and then you're living together, you know, you find out what little things really bug the crap out of you and you wish that they wouldn't do. <laughs> and how can I either modify my behavior to make that tolerable or how can I get, you know, that behavior to be, uh, be modified. So, you know, definitely a lot of time spent there. And, and from my perspective in the corporate development role, um, I am not going to be the guy that's going to be there on a day-to-day basis because I need to continue the role that I'm in looking for that next thing. But certainly within the organization, we've identified people whose 
whose jobs are to go in, whether it's operations, whether it's HR, whether it's finance, to kind of continue to be the ones to oversee that uh, and, re- and report back on a regular basis, whether it be to like a, you know, a mini steering committee type type thing who's overseeing how things are coming together. But yeah, the work certainly doesn't end there. As most folks listening understand, the big heavy lift is going to occur in that next 90 to 180 days to try to get as many things, you know, together and working seamlessly as possible. So. And from your perspective, is the challenge more operationally Focus when it comes to integration? Is it culturally? Is it something else? Is, is it anything you see on a consistent basis or, or is it really just really depend on this, the dynamics of that particular deal? I think it really depends on the on the deal because the more, uh, you know, if, if a seller is, is more open and they feel comfortable with you as a buyer, they're probably going to allow you more access or earlier access, deeper access. Um, Ideally, the, the employee base is going to be receptive to what's what's happening. We want to go in and, and really talk about, hey, why this is good for them. You know, give people comfort that, hey, nobody's, you know, nobody's losing their job. We're not moving the operations. You know, everything's going to be really status quo, only now we're going to have more opportunity for you going forward. So you want to try and really get in there early from the human capital side to, to get people on board so that, that isn't the issue. Because again, there's so much heavy lifting that needs to go on outside of that. We like to spend our time making sure that that, that really isn't something that we need to you know, care and feed as much post-transaction that we've had employee meetings and we've had town halls that you know people are prepared and, and, and they know what to expect on day one. I think you know, more so from our perspective, it's probably an operational type thing that you're going to find out that, oh, okay, this is this is really where the supply issues were coming from. Or these particular managers may not really have the skill set that, that we hoped that they would, because you're not going to have time to vet every person within an organization. And, and you know, a lot of times it boils down to how good the people are that are going to impact, you know, the, uh, the efficiency and, and the well-being of the organization. So... That makes a lot of sense. And I guess one of the other things that we like to ask the folks that join the show is just what advice you would have in general for someone that's currently in a consulting role and thinking about making a transition out of it, in, in this case, in, in, into kind of a, a corporate development or an M&A kind of focus role. Sure. Well, obviously, you know, in consulting, you know, people always talk about the, <clears throat> the M&A work and that's, you know, that's that's sexy, sexy right? <laughs> that's the sexy stuff, right? Yeah, that is. That's where I want to be. And then they get in there like, wow, this isn't really nearly as sexy as I thought it was going to be. This is this is a lot, just a lot of work too. But for somebody, if they want to roll into a corporate development role or, or private equity type, type role, I would say try to get on as many different types of transactions as you can. Because even if you feel like you're stuck doing one particular aspect of a transaction, you're going to be hopefully post-COVID still sitting in a room with you know, five, six, seven, eight other colleagues that are working on something. And there's a lot of osmosis that occurs. And, you know, the, the, the stuff that you're going to absorb is typically an issue or a problem that somebody's going to have. And you're going to have to, you know, they're going to have to work through it. And you're going to just pick up little things like that as you go along. And whether you realize it or not, it's going to go into your, you know, another arrow for your quiver. That's probably the first thing I'd say is, you know, try to get on as many different types of engagements as you can when it, when it comes to M&A whether it's a separation project, an acquisition, integration, project management, organizational development type roles. I found some of the most interesting things I did at UI were separation projects where 
you know, they didn't know who the buyer was going to be. Is it going to be a strategic? Is it going to be a private equity? So you really need to help structure the organization. If it's going to go to private equity, that's going to be a standalone and they need to be able to run a loan on day one because the private equity firm isn't going to, you know, they're not going to have the systems that they need necessarily. If it's a strategic, okay, what are, what potentially could they have with some of the low hanging synergies that they might be able to accomplish on day one? So those were great experiences that I had that I've definitely taken away. I would just tell people that, you know, as painful as some of this stuff can be, I always looked at consulting as basically you're getting three times the experience that, that somebody else that just goes out and joins a corporation is going to get. So if you're doing consulting for five years, quite I sincerely, you're getting 10 to 15 years worth of work experience. It's, it's, it's hard work. Hopefully you're getting adequately compensated for it, but, uh, but you're definitely doing things that the average you know, corporate type of employee is, is not seeing or being exposed to. So at the end of the day, it is a great experience. It really is. It's going to, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to get a lot from it. You know, it's a little bit of sweat equity that you're, that you're building up for yourself. But it was probably about five, six years ago, I'd say when all of a sudden I realized, wow, I'm a, I'm a pretty strong utility player. You know, I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> say that I was the expert in any one particular area walking in, but but I've been through enough different, you know, trials by fire and consulting and, and banking capital markets that nothing's really going to throw me too badly that I can't at least manage the situation and bring in the right resources to help help uh, help get to where we need to be. And Brad, I know you've had experiences outside of consulting, but is there any area where you feel like consulting might have felt fell short and it was something that you needed to develop on your own? Um, so I, I guess we could throw banking and in, in, in your years in service in there in there as well. But just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, to be brutally honest, um, you know, consulting it can be a it can be a harsh environment as well as I'm sure a lot of a lot of people can understand. And I I felt like many times, you know, from a leadership perspective, a mentoring perspective, that's where things fell short because you know a lot of these partners are under a lot of pressure to produce. Um, you know, they can get a contract signed and then they're already thinking about that next contract. And then they're really not popping back in unless the wheels are coming off the bus. And then it's, you know, hellfire rains from above. And, you know, a lot of people don't react, uh, you know, that well to that kind of uh, environment. And I was lucky. I worked for a number of really good people. Um, but I also had a couple of, of terrible experiences that just, you know, I kept thinking to myself, wow, this this would not have happened in the military. This, you know, there's a couple of just mantras I live by. One is praise publicly and criticize privately. You know, unfortunately, I've been in environments where, you know, people rose up through the ranks. They didn't ever quite get that. And unfortunately, uh, and, and I, I want to say this with, with some sensitivity, but, you know, when when people are beat up as a kid, they, they grow up to be bullies. And, you know, you know, consulting like everything, like the military, uh, is representative of society and you're going to get all kinds of folks, you know, hopefully many will be really good, but some people manage to rise up that, that, you know, really make things difficult for the people around them. And I think that's, that's what drives some people out, um, is that lack of mentoring and, and leadership where, uh, you know, they can, they can make a big difference in, in a, in a project or an engagement, especially when it's a difficult one. That reminds me of a situation I was in. I was at a private kind of dinner event and everyone had to kind of go around the room 
saying, you know, either a quote or, you know, a lesson they've learned throughout their career. And one of the things that struck me was a gentleman that was, he, he worked in private equity and previously, I think, consulting. And he said, you know, in consulting, we learn shit rolls downhill. And he said, I, I think that needs to stop. Um, he said, if you think about it more broadly, right, it's it's almost like you don't need to perpetuate the cycle of trauma. So it's like you, to your point, like, yeah. it, and he, he was he was ex- using the I guess the career analogy actually to talk more broadly about life, which is what you which is what you were doing. It's like if you get beat up as a kid, you're probably you're probably going to be a bully growing up. Yeah. And his point was like, you, you don't need to do that. Right. That, that doesn't serve anybody. So stop, you know, stop that cycle. Right. Um, right. And I, I think it's a really good point. And, you know, again, we're talking about the exceptions, not the not the rule in consulting, but there were definitely managers that I worked with um, that unfortunately, you know, had had those characteristics, but yeah. the majority were really good leaders as well. So, yeah. yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And I guess, Brad, we also ask our guests because we're all a bunch of uh, nerdy consultants at the core for any books that maybe you've read in your life that have had an impact um, that you'd like to share with our listeners. Yeah, there's a author Peter Zion. Uh, he uh, he's written about four books now, but uh, the first one's called The Accidental Superpower. If you're not familiar with the book, um, this guy Peter he he writes about how the U.S. really rose to be the preeminent superpower in the world, and and he looks at economic and political drivers and geographical uh, geographic drivers that I don't think you hear about a lot in the in the normal day to day. Um, but boy, if you read his book, all this thing, you'll look at a lot of things differently. And one of his big things uh, is kind of uh, population base and the fact that China, you know, China clearly big superpower, big economy, billion people. They had a one child policy for a very long time. And that's going to come back and bite them because, you know, a lot of that population is now aging and it's being supported by a much smaller base. And he takes a look at that in all over the world, uh, you know, Mexico, South America, uh, India, uh, and how that ultimately impacts the economics of a company of a country. Uh, he talks about the fact that you know the U.S. is very fortunate that we have these two great oceans that basically will always protect us from a, a land war. We will never have a Russia you know coming coming across the border like Ukraine's experiencing right now, simply because we don't have that type of you know neighboring populations. You know we're lucky we have plenty of natural resources. Um, between North America and South America. We're not nearly as reliant as, you know, a lot of the rest of the world on many other countries. So very interesting book. He's, he followed that up with The Absent Superpower. Uh, there's another one on the U- UN that he just that he came out with. That he just came out with his fourth book. Really interesting, easy reads. Uh, and the guy's just a really interesting look at, uh, at world politics, economics, the whole thing. Uh, and he, uh, he also has a... Uh, a free kind of uh, email that you can sign up for where you just like a weekly YouTube on current current conditions. So that's the one I'd recommend. Excellent. That's a really timely recommendation given everything going on uh, right now geopolitically as well. So yeah. Brad, really appreciate you joining us and, and, and the insights that you've shared with, with the listeners today. Um, I guess we'd just love to wrap it up by asking, um, you know, if, if people were interested in learning more about uh, your organization or, or, or you, um, any, any links or anything that you'd like to share or information that, that might be relevant? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. You know, WisconsinStamping.com uh, and then WeimarIndustries.com. Um, and then if, uh, if anybody has any follow-up questions, feel free to look me up on LinkedIn. I'm just Brad Eckert. The 
the only one on there that's going to be a corporate strategy guy with uh, with the with the Navy background. So happy to uh, connect with anybody and follow up with questions. Well, excellent, and uh, and truly, truly uh, appreciate you joining as as well as a, a as a as a fellow patriot. Thanks, thanks for your service. Hey, uh, appreciate that. Thanks. For those of you listening for the first time, uh, you be sure to subscribe either on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon. And if you want to catch up on past episodes, you can do so on those respective channels or check out beyondconsulting.info. And then lastly, if you want to get in touch with me, my contact info is going to be eca-partners.com. You can just go on the web and find me. I'm on the website there. Brad, thanks so much for joining. And uh, for everyone else, look forward to speaking next week. Hey, you bet. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye.